He never thinks anything wrong. And since we fall so far short of His standard, we need mercy. We want to be in His kingdom, but He can't have sin in His kingdom. And therefore, (coughs) if we are to be there, some kind of mercy has to be shown in order for us to attain to that. I wasn't thinking of this in particular this morning, but some thoughts were running through my mind as I was sort of meditating and and uh, thinking about this world and the condition it's in right now, and the way our nation is coming apart at the seams, and it's getting worse day by day by day, and who knows what the next 10 to 15 or 20 days are going to entail. Uh, I hear reports that Trump is in Texas and that he's trying to stir up military help and support, and the Texas may secede, which they have the right to do under their Constitution from the time they were uh, given statehood. And uh, he needs military backing if he's going to declare the insurrection uh, clause and arrest those who have contributed to fraud in the election. Whether that will actually happen or not, he's talked a lot and done nothing, but who knows. I do know that our president, one of them, has to be killed, the Bible says so. And I do believe that there has to be a civil war because Jeremiah 50 and 51 make it very clear there will be violence in the land, ruler against ruler. So our own rulers will be killing each other. That is a certainty. Uh, It's in God's Word, and there's no question it will happen. Exactly when and exactly how uh, remains to be seen, but we are on the edge of it. Uh, Some of those who are trying to take over right now have already stated that they will round up all Trumpers and do to them what they need, and they think they need to be dead. And some of them have even said so. So... uh, There's big trouble just ahead for this nation, and I don't know whether Trump will get it together or not, but I read speculation that Israel really wants Iran destroyed, and uh, we apparently just turned around one of our aircraft carriers and sent it back to the Middle East, which was coming home, and uh, he may be making some kind of deal to try to find allies for what he wants to do in this country, I don't know. But it could include a war with Iran. Uh, The military uh, complex in Washington, D.C., love war. That's where they make their money, and it's uh, where they get their power, and it's where they're given money from the government to operate. So power and money appeals to the military. And if Trump is going to get more of the military on his side, he's going to have to start a war somewhere in the next ten days uh, if he's going to do anything. So we'll see if that develops or not. I don't know. But I think from Daniel 8, it appears that we will have a war with Iran and break their horn, and thereafter our horn will be broken. But one point that was made was that... uh, Those military people understand that 
when the United Nations and the Chinese and the Russians come in here, their goose is cooked. Uh, they'll be killed. And I think that that's true of the politicians who have been behind this coup of the election that has occurred. Uh, they've taken Chinese money to help them do this thing, to motivate them to do it. But the Chinese won't trust them because they already know they're turncoats. Uh, so they're all destined to die as well. Uh, the Pelosi's and Harris's and Biden's and all of those. Uh, no way is communism going to put up with them. So they've cooked their own goose. Uh, but these things are all coming down pretty quickly. And uh, the Democrats, if they do get in control, are going to be opposed by conservative, patriotic-type Americans so if they don't get Trump killed, uh, perhaps it'll be Biden uh, and maybe Kamala Harris who are the ones that are killed. Because the scripture to me, in at least three places I can show you, directly indicate that we're going to lose our leaders. So which ones it is and exactly when, I don't know. But I think we're looking at the last ones uh, based on what's happening in the world and where God's plan is going. So, that's my comment about the world needing mercy, and we need mercy. But what I was thinking of this morning was, God's standard is so perfect, and He wants everything peaceful in His kingdom, and He once had created beings who did rebel against Him, Satan and those who became the demons. And He wants to guard in every way, against giving humans eternal life unless he is absolutely sure that they will never rebel against him. And I was comparing that with the world today and how nearly everybody is in rebellion against God. Either won't admit that he exists or admit that he exists but don't want to follow what he says or as somebody commented, even if my kids grew up in the church, they still will ask for prayer. They know God can heal. They've seen Him do it. So they'll ask for prayer from this parent, but they're not ready to submit themselves to God. They'd like to have some of His benefits without doing what He says to do. You know, that's what the whole Protestant world is about. I want benefits. I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to do anything God says I should do in obedience to Him. So even those who admit there is a God still live ultimately in rebellion against His way. And if you don't accept His way, you can't be in His kingdom. And I thought, what about these billions and billions of people that have lived and God's promise that most of them will be in His kingdom? He said, all Israel shall be saved there in Romans eleven twenty six. Not every individual, I'm sure, but he's speaking that the vast majority will. Because Christ did say there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, so some will go into the lake of fire. But it's not going to be many. God does not do anything that he does not intend to be a success at. So he's going to be a success at making man into God. 
not only Israel, but I would say probably a vast majority, if not most of the Gentiles as well, before it's all said and done. Now, what kind of a God can take this mess that we have here today, worldwide, and have had since Adam and Eve forward, and turn them into people who are obedient and subject and loving and kind and gentle and merciful and will always do everything the right way throughout all eternity. He's going to do it. We worship a God who can do it. And He's promised that He will do it. Now, how he will get that done is far beyond my imagination. I mean, I understand that he's going to kill most. And when they come up, they'll probably have a quite different attitude and approach. And they'll see the Father and the Son and the New Jerusalem here on the earth. And they'll have a whole different environment than that which they died in. God is going to send out two ministers to tell them about him and to tell about his blessings and what they could have and point to Zion and say, look how he's blessing them. I've said this before, but it's still such a concept. And they will absolutely deny it. Totally, absolutely deny it. And seek to kill the ones that are telling about how they can have blessings. You can have more food. You can have peace. You can have security. You can have rain in due season. All these things you can have if you'll just bow your knees to God. Nope! And they'll try to kill them. They will ignore mercy. They will ignore God's promises. And they'll try to kill those who bring the good news. And they'll have plagues come as a result of that denial. And you'd think it would kind of get through their heads. Our water turned to blood. We don't have food. We don't have this. We have these plagues. And if we would just do what these guys say, everything would be good. But that shows you how perverse the mind of man is, and how powerful Satan, who will be ruling, is, and how strong society is. You know, it doesn't matter to people. They're going to start having to be vaccinated, or they won't receive benefits. I just read that this new vaccine has parts of aborted babies in it. It's cannibalism if that truly be the case. You're going to take murdered babies into your system? I'm not. They'll have to kill me first. And they're quite willing. But God said if we will obey Him, He will protect us. So the promises you and I have today are the same promises that are going to be offered to the world for three and a half years and they are going to hate it with a passion. Prepare yourself to be hated totally by the world.
You'll be in a place of safety in Zion, but they'll hate you with a passion because you obey God and because he protects you. Now, how is God going to turn those bitter, adamant attitudes completely around and get them to worship him in such a way that he knows in his heart and mind that they will never turn against him again. Now, his mind is so much greater than ours, and he understands the dynamics of everything that's going on completely and utterly. We don't know how much power Satan has. We look at the earth, which he is the present ruler of, and we see nothing but confusion and terrible conditions, and it's getting worse. Now, he knows how much it will affect, how much effect it will have if he binds Satan a thousand years and people aren't influenced by him. And we can see from Scripture that he has an incredible, powerful influence as the prince of the power of the air. Because when he's bound, there can be peace for a thousand years. And then when he's released for a little season at the end of that... He creates a rebellion among apparently hundreds of millions who come against God and the New Jerusalem and true Israel. Just almost overnight, he has that kind of power. So that's one thing that God understands and knows better than we do, is that if he gets Satan out of the picture, humans will be a lot easier to work with. And our human nature is hard enough. But if he gives us and does for us the things that he's promised he can and will do as a human race, he knows the people ultimately will turn to him. He'll have to use power. He'll have to use force. But he says every knee will bend and bow and worship him. If they don't, they'll be broken. Or if some don't, they won't receive rain. You know, things, the conditions that he's promised that are good will not occur unless and until they obey him. And then once they start, they'll begin to realize, hey, this isn't too bad. This isn't too bad. And maybe they will be converted to the point that God can have mercy on most of the population of the earth who's ever lived from Adam until the end of the great white throne judgment. He's that powerful. He's that loving. He's that kind. And he's that merciful. But all the sins that have ever committed in that sense then, he is able to forgive and promises that he will through the blood of his Son. That's an awful lot of mercy to an awful lot of people. Fifty, sixty billion, it's estimated, have lived. And Christ's sacrifice will cover virtually all of them. And they'll be in his kingdom and live forevermore. Now there's a God that should inspire worship. Because as I thought about this, I, I, it, just, it was just awesome. But he could take what I see out here... That seems hopeless. It just seems hopeless. And it gets more hopeless every day. 
But he's got it all worked out. He knows how he's going to fix it all after the destruction comes. So when he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy, we need to consider that overall context of man's entire experience on the earth and what God is able to do with us uh, as a whole. And then for us individually, as those who have accepted his way, and yet still have difficulty with ourselves and with Satan, uh, we still fight it, we still make mistakes, we still sin, so we have to continue to work at it, and that's those who are being converted, who are being transformed from their old way of thinking to his way. But his way doesn't come easy with the pressures that we face in the world and Satan and ourselves. doesn't come easy. So he tells the disciples here, people who receive mercy are blessed. And those who are merciful will receive that mercy. So mercy is a very dire need for each and every one of us. And we need to know that we must show that mercy. Now, we have to come to have the mind of God, right? We have to think like Him. So today, let's look at some scriptures about Him and what His attitude is, because that's the attitude we need to have, is His. So let's go, first of all, to... uh, First Chronicles 16. First Chronicles 16. We know uh, from Hebrews 13.8 that Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. So I want to go back a bit into the Old Testament and see what, ad- what God's attitude was really all the way through. First Chronicles 16. You know... He worked with Israel, and he had trouble with Israel. They were a backsliding heifer. They were rebellious, stiff-necked, haven't changed much to this day. But he has always worked to try to get people to be what they ought to be. Let's pick it up here in uh, verse 7. They were uh, before the Ark of the Covenant of God, the priests with the trumpets and so on. And in verse 7 it says, Then on that day David delivered first this psalm to thank the Eternal into the hand of Asaph and his brethren. Well, this is when the Ark was brought back in. So he says, Give thanks to the Eternal, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. Now, that's really what here at the end time, he says, has to be done. Make his deeds known among the people of the world. Not just Israel, but the whole world. Because he's opened salvation up, at least for those he calls, for all races, all peoples, everywhere. But he hasn't called many of them yet, because they're awaiting a better time for them which he knows is best. 
So sing to him, sing songs to him, talk you of all his wondrous works, and glory in his holy name. This was a time of rejoicing. They were blowing the trumpets and singing and praising God that the Ark of the Covenant was coming. And down in verse 34, he, he goes on and on about that. Uh, he says, O give thanks unto the Eternal, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. So they were having troubles. They had difficulties. And yet God was bringing the ark to them. And they were rejoicing. And David was leading the rejoicing. And one of the primary things he mentions is that God's mercy endures forever. So you see that way back in the history of Israel. It doesn't use those words, but look at how he delivered them from Mitzrayim on Passover and how he showed his mercy to a people who had basically abandoned him. They had accepted the gods of the Egyptians. When Jacob came there and his son Joseph was there, uh, they were still, Jacob and his family, basically worshiping God. But after they were Mitzrayim a while, They'd forgotten God. So they wanted to know, well, which God is going to deliver us? And what's his name? We accept that there are gods. We just want to know which one you're talking about. And they didn't know the true God anymore. Now, isn't it pretty merciful that based on his promise to Abraham, he said, okay, I'll show mercy on you. I will deliver you from here. And then with a mighty hand, he did all kinds of miracles to get them out of there in spite of themselves. And in spite of their rebellions and their complaining and their murmuring and everything that they did. What an incredible show of mercy to keep working with them. He finally said, all right, you're going to keep doing this. I'm going to just let your carcasses fall in the wilderness. I'm going to keep my promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and your kids will go in, but you're not going. And he waited till they all died within 40 years, and then let the children go in. So he's maintained his promise to Abraham all the way through and shown mercy over and over and over again. God doesn't hold grudges. He shows mercy. He's always willing to be kind. We'll see that as we go on. Down in verse 41, he mentions it again. And with, he's speaking of some of Israel. And with them, Heman and Jaduthan, and the rest that were chosen, who were expressed by name, to give thanks to the Eternal, because His mercy endures forever. So some were set aside and given the responsibility of giving thanks. Thanksgiving and a thankful attitude is a very, very important part of our life and understanding. So when people are set aside to give thanks, what a wonderful honor that is. We might be asked to give an opening prayer or a closing prayer to give thanks to God. 
So you're singled out to do that for the rest of the congregation specifically to give thanks. And we say it in various ways, but that's basically what it's about, is thank you for our weather, thank you for peace, thank you for the food, thank you for all things. That's pretty much what an opening and a closing prayer is, along with a few requests maybe about healing or help or his mercy or whatever. But that's primarily what it's about. And they were giving thanks because his mercy endures forever. You know, that's something that should be part of our daily prayer, really, is thanks to God for his mercy that we're still alive this morning. (laughs) You know, I could have died in the night. Could have died real easily any time. We could. But here I am. It's a new day. Lamentations tell me God gives us a new day. What incredible mercy. However bad you were yesterday, you're one of His that He's chosen and called. And He's working with you. And no matter how bad a day you had or how rousy or rotten you were, He gives you a fresh start the next day. Now, how merciful is that? So, that's one of my prayers most of the time is, thank you that I get a new day to try to do better today than I did yesterday. He gives us a clean slate, fresh start. That's what he says there in Lamentations 2 or 3, wherever it is. And I call on that. I count on that. I need that. And it should be a part of our prayers. Thanksgiving to God. Here's another chance to have a good day and to do better. I mean, that's become common in our language. Have a good day. Have a good day. People don't really mean it. They just say it. (laughs) And maybe sort of they mean it, but it's just an expression. It should come with a heartfelt thank you to God that we have another day to live and to work toward his kingdom. That should be a major part of our attitude, in other words, our daily approach to life. And that's what they were showing here. And they were giving thanks that his mercy had endured and he was blessing them in spite of themselves. And that should be a part of our prayer, too, because... God doesn't always bless us for how good we are. He has a purpose for us, and he blesses us in spite of what we've been, as we try to do better. That's why he says, overcome, and you'll be in my kingdom. We have to overcome. That's part of every message to all seven churches. He tells every one of them to overcome. People use the argument, well, the Philadelphians weren't criticized. But he does tell them to overcome. (laughs) So there must be something wrong with them. Every human being has something wrong with them. Maybe I should say some things wrong with them. Because none of us are anywhere near having only one difficulty. We have many more than that. Anyway, his his mercy is there. Let's go to 2 Chronicles 5. Now, some of these scriptures are going to apply down the road specifically to us and where we are today. 
2 Corinthians 5. Here the ark is brought to the oracle, and God gives a visible sign of his favor. The heading says at the top of the chapter in my Bible. But in chapter 5, going down... uh, Let's go to verse 13 to start. It came even to pass, as the trumpeters and singers were as one, harmony, unity, to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Eternal. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Eternal, saying, For He is good, for His mercy endures forever." that then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Eternal, so that the priests could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Eternal had filled the house of God. Now we are here to build a temple, both spiritual and I do believe physical. And I do believe that God will fill it. But here it's interesting to note that as they were singing and thanking that the words, the lyrics, and their music with the instruments included His mercy endures forever, and praising Him and saying how good He is. And then the house was filled with the glory of God. Can you beat that? (laughs) That's pretty good right there. Let's go to chapter 7. I want that to happen with us. I want us, one day, to sing and praise God and thank Him for His goodness and say His mercy has endured forever with us and He will fill the house that we have built with His glory. says that in Ezekiel 40-48 to of how He will react. So in chapter 7 now, uh, down in verse 3, When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Eternal upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement, bent clear over, face on the ground, and worshipped and praised the Eternal, saying, "For, (coughs) For He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Now that reminds me of the rich man and the publican that Christ spoke of, where the one stood and held his arms out and thanked God for how wonderful he was. And then the publican, who couldn't even lift his eyes up, realizing he was a sinner and that he needed a lot of mercy and forgiveness, and he dared not even look up. He was so downcast with his own uh, lacks. And here, when God made himself known with fire, thunder, lightning, a cloud, they bent clear to the pavement and realized how small they were in comparison to a great God who in spite of all their sins as a nation, and they're recounted throughout this whole context, bad kings, good kings, bad people, good people, mostly bad, all the way through. And yet, at times, God would show His mercy and His kindness to them and love them. 
and it overwhelmed them. <coughs> so they bent clear over to the ground and praised him. Uh, verse 6, And the priests waited on their offices, the Levites also with instruments of music of the eternal, which David the king had made to praise the eternal, because his mercy endures forever. When David praised by their ministry, and the priests sounded trumpets before them, <coughs> and all Israel stood. <coughs> so this phrase, his mercy endures forever, is all the way back in Chronicles. Let's go to one more in Ezra. Here they were building the temple again, okay? This was the rebuilding of the temple here in Ezra. Ezra 3, verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the eternal. This is something that is going to be done shortly now, not very far from now, in our lives. If God sees fit in his mercy to allow us to be involved in it, and I think he is in spite of ourselves. We're trying. We're working at it. They sang together by course. Wait a minute. I, I skipped down. Uh, when the builders laid the foundation, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, same thing we've been reading in Chronicles when the ark was returned, to praise the Eternal after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. So what he had said in that psalm back there, and what he had told the priests and everyone to do, they were doing here again. We need to be prepared to have instruments and to sing and to praise God when the temple foundation is laid again in our lifetimes. While there are still old men around to have been able to compare worldwide at its best with the latter temple as it is built. They sang together by course in praising and giving thanks to the Eternal because He is good for His mercy endures forever toward Israel. They read what was written in Chronicles and they used the exact same lyrics here in Ezra to praise God. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Eternal because the foundation of the house of the Eternal was laid. So do we know how to act when that is done again? Yeah, we have examples in Chronicles and right here. But many of the priests and Levites and chiefs of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes wept with a loud voice and many shouted for joy. So you had people crying out loud and people shouting for joy all at the same time, tears of joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. It just combined. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard far off. As loud as they could yell, they thanked God and His endurance, or His mercy that endures forever. You know, sometimes when you're happiest, you just 
you're overcome with emotion and begin to cry. That's what's, that's how some of them reacted. You've probably experienced that with a wife. She starts crying and you don't know whether she's sad or happy. <laughs> you, you get it figured out what she's crying about. <laughs> If it's, if it's unhappy tears, you want to do something about that. If it's happy tears, you're thankful. And the same with men. I do the same thing. When I am overwhelmed with emotion and joy, tears come to my eyes. Sometimes my voice will break. I can hardly handle it. Sometimes with just a beautiful music to God, that happens to me. That's what happened here. And I know it does with you as well. So, this is in our near future. It isn't just ancient history. These are things here written for us, so we're going to know what to do. We're going to talk talk about how good God is and how His mercy has endured forever. And it will have endured a lot longer when we say it than it had when these people said it. It will have endured several more thousand years by the time we do it since then. We're getting a glimpse into God's mind here and how people should react. Now let's go to Psalm 136. I'm sure you realize I had to come here in a sermon like this. Psalm 136. Because you have here 36 voices, uh, verses in this psalm. And in every last verse... It ends with, for his mercy endures forever. Now, is David trying to make a point here about how much mercy God has? Where he writes a psalm and has that phrase in every verse. Oh, give thanks to the eternal, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Now, that's the same words that he had used back in Chronicles and told the people to use. And they use the same words in Ezra. And now as he's writing this psalm, he uses the exact same words. For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endures forever. To him who alone does great work wonders, his mercy endures forever. I'm not going to read through all of them. You've read them many times. He brings out here several verses, starting right after that, about all the things he did with Israel, bringing them out of Egypt, which I already talked about, because his mercy endures forever. So, here it is, uh, down through verse 16, he's still talking about it. Uh, smote great kings in verse 17 because he was merciful to Israel, slew famous kings, and, and he named some, Sihon and Og, and gave their land for an heritage to Israel, verse 21, for his mercy endures to ever. Verse 23, I like, who remembered us in our low estate for his mercy endures forever. Forever. And has redeemed us from our enemies, for his mercy endures forever. You know, those are promises he's made for us. And we can go back here and see that he has fulfilled those promises in the past. And since he's the same yesterday, 
today and forevermore, he's going to fulfill the ones he's made to us. That we of low estate, who are far below his standard and what he is, are going to be shown mercy. The only thing he asked, or asks in that sense, in that particular subject, as Christ stated it very plainly, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So if we expect mercy, he expects us to show mercy. And the reason I'm going through these particular scriptures is so that we might rehearse how merciful he truly is. Because we're to be like him. And if he's this way, this is how we need to be to others. We don't hold grudges. We don't keep attitudes. We let them go. We just let them go. How many times do we show each other that we have not done so? Because we say, I forgive, or I'll move here, I'll do this, I'll be merciful. I'll forgive you for what you've done to me or attitude you've had toward me or whatever. We'll say that. But the next time emotions get raw or there's an argument or a fight or a lack of communication, whatever it is, we're right back on it. We remember things that happened 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago sometimes. And we'll bring it up again. Well, if it was really forgiven, why is it still there to be used in a moment when you're trying to find some leverage to hurt in some way? Why is it still there? Maybe it hasn't truly been forgiven. You know, when God talks about His forgiveness, He says that our sin will never be mentioned to us again. Now, we've got to live up that, to that standard with each other. If it's gone, if it's past, a day, a year, ten years, twenty years, it is not legal for us to bring it up at a time of emotion and anger and hurt. Do we understand that? It's illegal to bring it up. In that sense, it's a sin to bring it up. Because if Christ forgave it, and you forgave it, it's done. It's passed. It's not legal to use it anymore. Now, we've all messed up on that one. I'll guarantee you. Everybody has. Everybody does. But we've got to fix that. You know, you're not going to go through the kingdom of God through all eternity being reminded of what you were back here. God is going to completely remove it. And where we're headed is going to be so much better that you would never even think of reviewing the past. It'll be so inconsequential and so far behind and so far beneath us that we'd never think of it. Now, maybe we still have the Protestant view that Jesus is coming back and he's going to separate all people 
into sheep and goats. No, he's not. Not for us. Do we grasp that? You do not have to face a judgment when Christ returns. If you are a converted member of his people, of his spiritual Israel, you will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And once you're changed, his good judgment has passed upon you. Now, if you're left standing here and don't rise, then another judgment has already been made. You're not going to have to stand before His throne to be judged. You're going to know when you see other people's feet above you where you're headed. Lake of fire. Because you didn't measure up. If you rise... Judgment's been made. You're a sheep. The goats get left behind. Now, will he come and will he separate people in the millennium over time as they live a life and in the great white throne judgment and to those who are sheep and to those who are goats? Yes. But when he returns, that isn't what occurs except an instantaneous transformation of the sheep into spirit beings. So you and I do not have to stand there and have all of our past sins recited and then him saying, yay or nay. (laughs) It isn't like that. And judgment is over a lifetime. It's not like he just sits down and starts calling names of 60 billion people. No. Judgment is now on us. How long is our judgment? From the time we're called till the time we die or are changed. That's how long our judgment is. It isn't just a sheep, goat, sheep, goat, like the Protestants say. No. Judgment is now on the house of spiritual Israel, you and me. And that judgment will be complete when he returns. And you'll either be changed or you won't be. And since he says all Israel shall be saved, I think most will be. The very elect. And I hope we can be among them at that time. I certainly hope so. So he goes through here and talks about redeeming us from our enemies. He promises he'll do that. He'll be a wall of fire around us to protect us here at the end. So that promise is there in the Psalms for us today. Who gives food to all flesh, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of heaven, for his mercy endures forever. Now, that's the kind of mercy God shows. And when he says, your sins will not be mentioned to you ever again, then that is his attitude, and that's what he wants done with sin. He wants sin to be repented of, forgotten, and removed doesn't want it around. He doesn't want to be able to lift up the carpet and find the ones that got swept under there and bring them out for us. No, he wants them gone under the blood of Christ. And if that's his attitude and his mood and his whole approach to life and to humans, then that's the approach we need to have to each other. 
I can go through and show you many psalms where David asked for mercy for himself. He did, over and over and over again. And you and I do too, ask for mercy, probably almost a daily basis. We ask for God's mercy to be extended to us. Well, he tells us we have to be merciful to others if we expect that mercy to be extended. So we have to come to have the attitude of God. If we pray for mercy, we have to extend mercy. And if he's not going to bring our sins before us, and we have a fresh start every morning, then we need to give each other that as well. And if we do that every day, it will clear up a lot of our relationship and communication problems because we're not bringing up what happened yesterday or last week or last month or 40 years ago. It's gone. So it isn't fair. It isn't right to use yesterday. You can only use what's there today. Now, maybe somebody had the same problem 40 years ago that they have today, and they haven't overcome it yet. But you're only dealing with that problem as it exists today, not as it existed a long time ago. You deal with that person as they stand today and how you might help them with whatever difficulty they're having so that tomorrow might be better. You ask for mercy because you want tomorrow to be better, right? And the reason you give mercy is you want somebody else's tomorrow to be better. And we all fall short of this. Is why we still have relationship and communication difficulties. And probably will continue to because we continually fall short of the standard of God. But I want us to focus on Him and His standard... Because he tells us you need to be like me and be merciful if you expect to have it. So let's see how he thinks. That's what counts here. And that's very clear in Psalm 136. Now let's go on down to a few more. Jeremiah 33. We'll find the same words here in Jeremiah. Uh, Verse 10. Thus says the Eternal, Again there shall be heard in this place, which you say shall be desolate, without man and without beast, even in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man and without inhabitant and without beast. That's where the cities of this nation are headed. This is a prophecy about modern-day Israel specifically of Israel and Judah, or I mean of uh, Ephraim, which is part of Israel and Judah, these prophecies are aimed. So, that's where it's headed right now. But, instead of that, there will be the voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, the voice of them that shall say, Praise the eternal of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his mercy endures forever. And of them that shall bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the eternal. 
For I will cause to return the captivity of the land as at the first, says the Eternal. Now, we understand the prophecies well enough to know that he's speaking first here of spiritual Israel and the church. And how the congregations, the cities, the churches would become desolate. And they have since approximately at least 96. They become that way. Even back when I was still in Charlotte and would visit in certain areas, I remember going to Florida and being up, I think I was, well, somewhere just north of Miami. We had a meeting of people who had come out of worldwide and were wondering what to do. And I think 30 or 40 showed up. They heard I was coming down. I was with Church of the Great God at the time. And I kind of quizzed them. Because they came from Miami, they came from Jacksonville, they came from wherever they were around the area, from various churches, and some were down uh, from the Northeast visiting in Florida during that period of time. I guess it was in the winter. And uh, I put it to them. How many are left in the congregation that you were attending when all this started? How many are left today? And it was incredible that they almost all said around 10% within a 2 or 3 or 4 or 5% of that. And God said that 90% would depart and only 10% would be faithful and true and come to build his temple here at the end. And even clear back in the late 90s, that must have been somewhere around 97 or 8 when that occurred, and I asked the questions, it had already been decimated, which means dropped by down to 10%, a decimal. So the church has been been getting pretty desolate, and a lot of people have quit and died ever since then. I don't know how many are left now. (coughs) But anyway, to the church will return. The joy of the bride and the bridegroom. The nation won't have that. Prophecy is very clear that that won't be heard. Just like it has been in the church. Everything's been basically a downer. But there'll be happiness again. God will return it to us, and then he'll return it to the whole world in the millennium. But he uses the same words. God is good, and his mercy endures forever. Remember those words. That's a key phrase that keeps coming up, Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. God is good, and His mercy endures forever. Now, that tells you a lot about God, and it tells you that that is one of His main characteristics. One of His primary ones. Because every one of these examples we've used so far have been at a turning point in Israel's history, And that is the phrase that is used in every case so far. I don't know that it always was, but there were only so many places where it says His mercy endures forever, and I looked them up. And in each case, this is what we have found. Go back to Deuteronomy 4. Uh, Verse 31, I want. Well, let's go to 39 and pick the context at least a little bit. 
When you are in tribulation, and all these things are come upon you, even in the latter days, okay, when we have tribulation and trouble here in the latter days, if you turn to the eternal your God and shall be obedient to his voice, for the eternal your God is a merciful God, he will not forsake you, neither destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he swore to them. Now, we've already seen that he made promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and in spite of Israel's intransigence and rebellion, he found a way to fulfill those promises through their children. He swore those conditions, and he will fulfill them. He will not forsake us, and he will not let us be destroyed. We've seen, and I can take you back to all kinds of scriptures where he says he'll deliver us from the Assyrian and send the Assyrian packing and all kinds of things where he says he will protect us and take care of us. So that is his attitude. Second uh, Samuel 22. Way back here, that was his attitude. It hasn't changed. And he even mentions latter days there in Deuteronomy. Second Samuel 22, uh, verse 25, Therefore the Eternal has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in His eyesight. With the merciful you will show yourself merciful. And with the upright man, you will show yourself upright. Here it is written back here in 2 Samuel 22, almost verbatim the same words Christ used in Matthew 5. If you are merciful, you will receive mercy. And that God will recompense our righteousness and cleanness. And where we lack, he will make it up with his mercy. But the upright man, he will cause to be upright as well. So his incredible mercy is shown over and over. Uh, Psalm 57, let's go back to Psalm for a moment. Fifty seven this this time. And here in verse 1, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. He repeats it. For my soul trusts in you. Yes, in the shadow of your wings will I make my refuge until these uh, calamities be overpassed. I will cry to God most high, unto God that performs all these things for me. So he says, he pleads for mercy, and he says, I will trust you to have that mercy. Now we know the just shall walk and live by faith, and trust and faith are synonymous. So he says, but when I say I'll be merciful, believe me, I will. Do we deserve mercy? No, not generally. We don't deserve it. Because we continue to transgress. But through Christ's sacrifice 
and their attitude, he will continue to extend it in spite of ourselves. Because none of us will ever live up totally to the absolute standard of God. Here's his standard, and we all come short. Some days we're here, some days we're here, but we never get to there where we walk perfectly before him. Only one was able to do it, and he's now our Savior. So we'll always fall short of it. And only, as we've said before, it only takes one sin to kill you. Just one. Because the wages of sin is death. You don't have to commit a hundred thousand sins to kill you. One's enough. But his sacrifice is big enough to cover the one or the thousand, either one. So when he shows mercy to one degree or another, it's undeserved mercy. That's what grace is, is undeserved pardon. Grace and mercy are very closely akin. But we can be so thankful. That's why that is in there. God is good. His mercy endures forever. So he is good. His attitude is good. His outlook is good. And therefore, when we fall short, he says, oh, yeah, I'll extend mercy. In a human realm, we're somewhat that way, let's say with our children. We want to be happy with our children. We want our children to do well. And our children mess up from the time they're born till they're grown. And thereafter. Yeah, we always mess up. But you don't want friction between you and your children. You want it to be a happy, loving, I love you, you love me relationship. And it kind of, like a yo-yo, goes up and down between happiness, joy, and frustration, and disgust, and every other emotion. Anger. It goes through all those on a constant and continual basis. But we like it when it's loving and sweet and kind. That's what we love. That's what we want. But the kids fall short and we fall short. And therefore there are difficulties. And that's the way it always will be between us and God as well. What a wonderful thing that he gave us children. That we might see how we need to act toward those children, even when they're bad, we do what is necessary to get them back in a good mood. Various forms of discipline or whatever it takes to get them back in a good mood. And then once that attitude changes, then we can pick them up and love them and hold them and tell them how much we love them. But we want their attitude to change first. It's hard to tell a kid who's stomping on your foot how much you love him. You know? But when his attitude changes and he's smiling through the tears and can say, Mommy or Daddy, I love you, it melts our heart. I can remember times when I told Marla I loved her. I think pretty much every day of our lives together over 37 years. 
And often, many, many, many times a day, I would say that and she would say that. But there were times when I had to push it out. There were times when she had to push it out. Yeah, I love you too. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we'd try to say it whether we were really feeling it or not. Because we knew we had to get whatever was the issue of the moment fixed. But most of the time it came easy because we were close and harmonious. And then there were times when the communication wasn't so good or one of us had infringed or whatever, usually me. Uh, it became harder to say. And God deals with that. It's easier for Him to bless us and show mercy when we are bowing to the pavement or saying, forgive me a sinner, and we feel it in our heart, it's easy, easier for him to say, yes, I forgive you. Let's move on. But when we're rebellious and stiff-necked and we're wanting to do what we want to do and we still want to sin or we still want to have a bad attitude and we're not ready to get over it because we deserve it. Then he has more trouble saying, yes, my very deeply loved son or daughter, I forgive you. It's harder for him to say. Let's make it easy on him. We've, we've all experienced what I'm telling you about right now. This isn't news to you. But it's the same between him and us as it is between us and each other and our kids. It's just a lot easier to say when the attitudes are all right. Psalm 67. Uh, here I want verse 1. God be merciful to us and bless us. Not just David himself, but now he's praying in terms of Israel. And cause his face to shine upon us. So be it. That's one of the things you and I are praying for right now. Is this prayer. Because he's told us when he spewed us out of his mouth, he would turn his face from us because he couldn't stand to look at us. And then he tells us to repent there in Revelation 3. And he says, when we do and turn to him with all our hearts, then he's going to turn his face back to us and smile on us and bless us. Now, that's just saying in a different way what I just went over. Is it's easier for him to look at us when we're repentant. And when we are and our heart is right, he can turn his head back to us and smile and bless. That's what we're trying to evoke from God now is to turn our hearts and attitudes so that it makes it easy for him to say, I love you. We tell him we love him with a heart that is right. And it's easy for him to say, I love you too. Because his love is greater than ours. It's deeper than ours. It's easier for him to express than ours. He is quicker to forgive and forget than we are. He's way above us in all this. 
Let your face shine upon us, that your way may be known upon earth, your saving health among all nations. Now, that's what he tells us to do there in the Sermon on the Mount. We haven't gotten to it yet. But he says, let your light be on a hill and so shine that all men, the whole world, may see through you that I am God. That's what he wants of us, to be an example to the world that he is God. So all those places in the prophecies that it talks about his face shining on us, and us being an example, is mentioned right here in Psalm 67.1, before he even gets into those specific prophecies. It's all here for us. 103, verse 8. I'm through, aren't I? just happened to look at this little clock. I'm not used to looking at it. 103, verse 8. The Eternal is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. So it's hard to get God mad. It really is. It's hard to do. He's slow to anger. He doesn't just lash out. He's slow to anger. And plenteous has lots of mercy in his heart. He will not always chide or chasten, neither will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. In other words, God does not judge us according to what we deserve. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. How high is the heaven above the earth? I sit and look at the heavens sometimes, and it just seems like it goes on forever. And you can look at the stars, and they just go on forever. With a telescope, they go on even further forever. That's how... Uh, His mercy is. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. How far is it from the east to the west? The earth is round, believe it or not, and east and west combine, and that means that our sins are removed as far as you can get, east and west. Like as a father pities his children, so the eternal pities them that fear him. We just use that example and analogy. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. He remembers that. He knows what we are. I remind him of that myself sometimes. Remember my frame. And how I don't measure up to who you are and what you are. Please have mercy. That's the way he is with us. And that's how he expects us to be with each other. 